Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning and greetings from Freie Evangelische Gemeinde in Sturm. Now, come on. Sturm is really simple, isn't it? I was pastor to the church in Mechernisch, which nobody can pronounce here, so I decided to take a call in Sturm. <laughs> Anyways, um, we're very grateful for your prayers. The church is doing well. We have been growing from a, a little under 30 members to exactly 70 now. We have about 100 people on a good Sunday in our two worship services, one in German language, one in English language, because we have a lot of non-German members in the church. And, you know, it's kind of amazing. One of the things that characterizes our church is we had a, a Christmas play on Christmas Eve last year. And uh, Ilsa actually worked, my wife, she worked with the kids. And I like to say we had about 14 black sheep on stage. <laughs> you know, because all the young people and all the children in our church are Africans. And it's a miracle that, well, you know, this year we celebrate 500 years of the Reformation and we all say, yeah, and Luther was a German and aren't we a great people? Well, the fact is the German nation turned away from God 150 years ago and maybe even longer ago. And so now God is sending Christians from Africa and from the country of Iran and they come and they rebuild our church. And thank you for your prayers for that. And we pray for you. We think of you a lot. One of the privileges we have as Christians is, even though we're thousands of miles away, we're united in the Holy Spirit. And I think it's just wonderful. So thank you very much. Our sermon text this morning is... Uh, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. I was wondering if Jim was still here. Jim, ha, Jim, do you ever sit down when an officer comes in who is superior to you and talks to you? No. And so we have a habit in our church, which I'm going to teach you this morning, that when our king talks to us, we stand up. So would you please stand while God is talking to you from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. 
for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Father, that you speak to us and you speak into our lives to show us who you are and who we are. And Father, we ask you to open our hearts and our ears to bless our hearing and to bless my words that they may be pleasing to you and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The Bible tells us that by Adam, the first man created, by Adam, sin entered the world. And then in Adam's sons, sin spread throughout the world and it grew like a cancer. It spread. The Bible says that Adam's son, Cain, committed the first murder in history and then only five generations later, one man killed another for just a little bruise, you know, for something really small, took his life. That's how sin spread. And five generations after Adam, man took the right to take vengeance for himself, to kill others because they had done something to him. In Adam's son Seth, the second line of humanity began. That's the line that turned to God and began to call upon his name. But then quickly afterwards, Seth's line also became sinful. And 10 generations after Adam, sin had become so powerful that every man's intent of the thought of his heart was continually evil. In other words, man was firmly ruled by sin. He woke up, he had sinful thoughts. He went to bed, he had sinful thoughts. And people, that's us. Because the word of God is eternally true. And so we think that we get up in the morning and we make decisions because we're free citizens. No. No. We are born in sin and we are ruled by sin unless God saves us by faith. There's just no escape. And it has been true ever since then. And so since then and to this day, God's righteous judgment on us stands firm. Psalm 14, the Lord looked from heaven upon the children of man to see whether anyone be wise and seek after God, but they have all turned away and are corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Or Psalm 5, Man's mouth is an empty tomb, and with their tongues they deceive. Or Psalm 140, the poison of vipers is under their lips. Psalm 10, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Isaiah says their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are on their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And Psalm 36 concludes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's mankind then, 
at the time of Noah, and that's mankind now. This is us, and it's God's righteous judgment on us in Germany, in Sturm, in the United States, in Bloomington. God's word is eternally true, and so his judgment is eternally true. Sin corrupts man, but it doesn't stop with man. Sin also corrupts nature. Genesis 6 verse 9 recounts the history of Noah, and then in verses 11 and 12 it says, but the earth was corrupt before God, and it was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh was corrupt. And all flesh, that's human flesh, and it's animal flesh. Human flesh is corrupt. After Adam and Eve sinned, human flesh was no longer as good as it was upon creation. That's why people suffer from illnesses and sicknesses and keep Adam in work, right? <laughs> because everything you do, you heal the consequences of sin. Human flesh is corrupt. After creation, it would never have happened that a little baby dies in her mother's womb. But after Adam and Eve sinned, that's what happened because human flesh is corrupt. But animal flesh is corrupt too. In creation, the Bible says, God had given all animals green plants to eat. And the lions and the sheep had been grazing peacefully together and little children played with vipers. By the sin of Adam, animals became violent too. Animals kill animals. Animals eat animals. Animals like vipers and scorpions now have deadly poison that they didn't have upon creation. And from one, and, and some animals like hornets have dangerous stings. And so sin is transmitted from Adam and Eve, from man to the animal world, to nature, and then it is passed on generation after generation in the animal world. Nature suffers from sin and from the violence sin causes, and nature groans under it, Paul says in the letter to the Romans. But you know, like us humans, nature is not without hope. Because when Jesus returns to judge all mankind and to take all those who believe in him into his kingdom, then Jesus will also redeem nature. And then again, lions and lambs will graze together and little kids will play with vipers and the animal world will be redeemed. So... The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for us. But it's also good news for nature. Tell your dog. Tell your cat. There's hope. Okay? Because the gospel is good news not only for, for us human beings. It's also 
good news for nature. Now, God is saying this to us in the book of Genesis because God wants to warn us against romantic dreams and fancies about nature. In our days, plenty of philosophers and environmentalists praise Mother Earth. Mother Earth, Gaia, the source of all peace, right? That's what they say. And they put nature above human lives. Peter Singer, one of the philosophers at Princeton University, he says you should rather kill a baby with some imperfection than kill your dog who is perfect. Can you be more sinful than that? God tells us to preserve nature and to care for it, but never to put nature above human lives. And so these people, they say that nature is the source of peace and it's only humans that destroy it. And that's complete rubbish. They dream of finding inner peace by delving into the mysteries of Gaia and worship, worshiping her and making peace with her and it's nothing but idol worship. That's all it is. We should never engage in that. You, that. Nature is not peaceful. Nature is violent and nature is cruel as the human heart. Just look at Harvey and Irma. You know? Can you tell me that nature is peaceful when you watch the hurricanes? There is no peace but from God and so we should never worship nature and never put human lives above nature. Never put nature above human lives. So, ten generations after Adam, God looked upon the earth and he saw the corruption of man and nature. And then the Bible says, and the Lord was sorry and grieved in his heart that he had made man on the earth. Now, what does that mean? God was sorry? When I'm sorry for something, that usually means I did something foolish. And now the bad consequences are there, which I didn't expect. And now I wish I hadn't done it, right? That's what we think when we're sorry. I drove my car into the ditch thinking that I was driving a racing car. And now the car is gone, and I wish I hadn't done it. I'm sorry. That's what it means to be sorry. Is God sorry like that? No. Because everything that has happened since creation, God was never surprised. God knew exactly what was coming. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin. And God also knew that he would send his son to die on the cross for the sins of all those who believe in his son. So God is not like us. God is not surprised by the outcomes of his actions. So what does the Bible mean when it says that God was sorry? Well, it's the Bible's way to describe God's judgment. Judgment of man and of nature it's a description in human terms so that we can understand it. In God's eyes, nature and man had become ugly, despicable. 
they were no longer worth being kept by him. And therefore God decided at this moment, I will get rid of all of them. Mankind and the animal world, I will destroy them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, you know, again, we're tempted to read this but as saying, oh, God had almost overlooked Noah, right? God was looking down from heaven and he saw Germany and he said, ah, that's bad. And then he saw California and, ah, no, that's bad. And Bloomington, oh, but I almost overlooked Noah, right? I'm so glad I found him. No, that's not what... what this but is all about. God did not say, oops, Noah. God knew Noah because God had made Noah. God knew Noah even before creation in the same way that God knew every one of us before creation. So what does the but mean? It means there's a distinction between all mankind except Noah. All mankind is corrupt and goes into destruction, but Noah. All mankind was corrupt. The one man, Noah, found grace. And so what the Bible tells us here is that God knows every human being individually, personally, and judges him individually and personally. There is no collective judgment with God. There is no collective punishment with God. There is individual personal judgment and individual personal punishment. And there's also no collective grace with God and no general redemption. There's only individual judgment, individual grace, individual redemption. Our relationship with God is always a personal relationship. God judges every human being by his own deeds. God condemns every sinner on the basis of his own sins. And God saves every believer based on his own faith. Noah found grace. The rest didn't. God looked at Noah and decided to save him from the destruction of all mankind and all the animals except Noah and his family and the animals Noah would take on the boat with him. Out of the entire mankind, God picked this one man who found grace in his eyes. Well, now, of course, you think, why Noah? What did Noah do to find grace in the the eyes of the Lord? And the scandal is the Bible doesn't tell us. It's completely silent about it. Verse 9, a little later, says that Noah was a righteous man and he walked with God, but that's just another way of saying he found grace. It doesn't tell us specifically what he did to find grace. Noah found grace. That's all. Period. 
A little later, we learn about the man that God told him to build an ark or a large ship with several floors sealed with pitch that could swim in, in deep water for a long time. And God explained to him that he would destroy all human and animal life except the life that Noah would take with him into the ark, his family, one pair of every kind of animal. Unbelievable, isn't it? He even took spiders. I don't know why he did that. But, but God promised Noah a covenant saving him from destruction. And then it says, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Well, when my children were little, you know, now they're big and they're boring, but when they were little, they were very entertaining. And so they wrote a little play and they liked to perform it in our garden. And the play was about Noah. Two of my children were Noah and his, one of his sons probably. And so they set out to build a ship in the middle of a green field and there's no lake, no sea, nothing around there. So, you know, it's kind of odd to build a ship there. And, um, and then the neighbors, my oldest daughter was always the neighbors, they came to see Noah and they said, Noah, what are you doing? That's amazing. That's a big ship. And then a little while afterwards, the neighbors would come back and say, Noah, you're crazy. There's no water. What do you want with a ship? And then a little later, the neighbors would come and say, hey, Noah, we're having a party. Come with us. Eat and drink with us. Let's have fun. But Noah did what the Lord had told him. And so they kept building the ship. Now, what does that say? It says Noah believed God more than his neighbors. And Noah, I assure you, was not a stupid man. He knew that it was kind of crazy to build a ship in the middle of Greenfield. And so Noah trusted God more than his own wisdom. God spoke to Noah, and Noah did. And since creation, that's how all human beings, including you and me, should have lived. Noah had faith in God when nobody else on earth did. And so now you think, aha, so Noah earned God's grace by being obedient. He built a ship. That's why he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. No, no. The text says very clearly that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then he built a ship. He didn't find the Lord's mercy because he built a ship. He built a ship because he had found mercy in the eyes of the Lord. And the point is, we cannot earn God's grace. God is completely sovereign in his grace. God alone decides whom he gives grace and whom he doesn't. God's grace needs no other reason than God's decision to be gracious. God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Full stop. 
No reasoning. It's his decision. We cannot earn his grace through obedience. We are obedient to his work because we have found his mercy. Noah found grace because God wanted him to find grace. Or I would say it even more precisely, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because God had made him that way. Because after all, God had created Noah, right? And he had created this one man man, such that he would have faith and trust God more than his own wisdom and more than his neighbors. And he would answer to God's grace with thankfulness and with obedience. And that's still true today. Jesus assures us that everyone who believes in him has eternal life. Whosoever believes in me has eternal life, not will have, has already. John 6, verse 40. And immediately afterwards, Jesus says, and no one can come to me except the Father draws him. Okay? If God doesn't draw us to Jesus, we will never go. That's what we just sung in the song. I would never have accepted faith. Faith is always something that comes from God. The initiative is always with God. Faith is always originating with God. It's never our merit. You know, I I know a lot of people who like to say, I made a decision for Jesus Christ. And the minute you hear that, you know that in the background they are thinking, and Jesus should be really thankful for that. Right? I made a decision for Jesus Christ. Yeah, and he's really glad I did. No. No. Faith is always a gift from God. And therefore, the Apostle Paul says, no one should boast, but if you boast, boast of the Lord. The Lord gave me a heart that accepted faith. Thanks be to the Lord. Glory be to the Lord. Boast of the Lord. Every believer should know that God gave him a heart able to accept the gift of faith and then boast of the Lord. And if we find grace, it is because God wanted us to find it and he made us to find it. God made Noah to find grace, and Noah found grace. And so there is the whole of mankind in its wickedness, which had become despicable to God, but the one man found grace. And God kept him and his family to survive the great flood and to carry on the history of mankind for the sake of the one God loved. He carried on mankind. I like to call this the Noah principle of God's salvation history. The Noah principle is that out of the whole mankind, God selects for himself a remnant, a group of people, maybe one, maybe more. 
God selects for himself a group of people that will carry on his plan of salvation until Jesus comes back. That's the Noah principle of salvation history. And you can think about and discuss how large that group is. I don't care. Jesus was once asked, do you think that there will be few in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus did not reply. So, if I read the book of Revelations, I get the impression there's a whole lot of people there. (laughs) But you can debate. The important thing is God selects for himself a remnant with which he carries out the next step of his plan of salvation while all the wicked people perish in their sin. And that principle, the Noah principle, goes through the entire Bible and it holds even today. And therefore, even today, even this morning, every human being is faced with one important question. Am I part of God's remnant or not? Am I part of God's salvation history or am I doomed for destruction? We see the Noah principle at work in the Old Testament. Ten generations after Noah, the world was occupied again by plenty of men. Man made another attempt to put themselves into the place of God. That's the story of building the Tower of Babel. You've heard about that story, right? And they like to tell us, well, they were trying to build a tower so high they could get into the place of God. And the Bible is really funny because they build and build and build and build. And then God comes down from heaven. (laughs) You know, and you have the impression that there was a long way to travel when they thought they were almost there. But that's not the point. The point of the story is that they say, let's build a city and a tower and make a name for ourselves. Now, in ancient times, your name is what you are, okay? Your role in life, your destiny, everything you are is your name. So when they said, let's make a name for ourselves, they said, we want to determine what we are and what we are in society, and what we do with our lives. They were not content with being creatures. They wanted to be in God's place. That's the point of the story. And at that point, God talks to a man by the name of Abraham, a descendant of Noah, and he told Abraham to leave his home and go to a foreign country. Now, at that time... Going to a foreign country is not like me getting on an airplane and flying from Frankfurt to Chicago and then Indianapolis and then drive down here and meet friends, right? Because if you left your home, that meant you were utterly without protection. Your home was where you were safe. If you left your home and your country, anybody could do with you whatever you liked. He could kill you, could make you a slave, whatever. And so when Abraham decided to follow God's call and leave his home, he knew he was doing something as stupid as Noah when he built a ship in the middle of a green field. But he did it because the 
Lord called him and he trusted him. And Abram's descendants are the remnant that carries on God's plan of salvation. And then later, God takes his people to Egypt and then he calls his people out of Egypt and immediately they turn away from the Lord. But God kept a small group of men, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, as a remnant. Three men who trusted him, and they saw the Holy Land, and Joshua and Caleb actually entered it. All the others died without seeing it. And then when the people lived in their land, immediately they turned to worshiping the Baals. And God kept 200 men under the leadership of Elijah as a faithful remnant. And then again later, when the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem, when they were doomed for destruction because of their sinfulness, God announced through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah that he would keep a remnant for himself a remnant that would carry on the history. So God says in Isaiah 10, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped the house of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but they will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. And in Jeremiah 23, God says, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds. And they shall be fruitful and increase, and I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and the king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And, of course, there he's speaking of Christ. And so when the whole country and the cities are destroyed, God had already selected a remnant, a group of faithful and obedient people that he would bring back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that Jesus would preach in. In the prophet's Ezekiel, we read that God commanded him to seal the few men and women who were faithful in Jerusalem with a sign on, the, on their foreheads to protect them against the coming destruction of the city and the land. The vast majority of the people were lost. They went into exile and disappeared. But the remnant returned to rebuild the temple and to carry on God's plan of salvation. The book of Revelations tells us that the Noah principle continues until the end of time. We read of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia, and each letter brings warnings, warnings of destruction to the larger part of the people in each church. 
and promises of salvation and glory to the small remnant of those who confess Jesus faithfully. Jesus speaks of the remnant of the church in Thyatira, those who did not fall to the tricks of Satan, and Jesus promises them that they will not suffer like the rest of the church. And he tells them, hold fast to your faith. The majority of the church in Sardis was spiritually dead, but there was a remnant of faithful believers who will be with the Lord, Jesus says. Jerusalem will be destroyed by a great earthquake when Jesus returns, but the remnant, those who kept the word of God, have the testimony of their Lord and salvation in eternity. Now, let me bring this a little bit closer. A couple of weeks ago, a bunch of famous pastors published what is called the Nashville Declaration. And it deals with homosexuality and how the church should answer to it. And, um, and Pastor Bailey and his son Joseph and I and Brian Bailey, after looking at it, we set to work and by now we published the Nashville Statement Fortified. It's on the Warhorn page, so go to it and read it. And I know that there are people in this church who, when they heard about this, said, can't we be for one time silent and not stand up against the famous ones and just for once march with the crowd? But people, Jesus says, be faithful. Hold on to your faith. That's the whole point. And if we do, we will be in his paradise. And so this shows that the Noah principle also holds today in the church. Not everyone who goes to church belongs to the kingdom of God. Church membership is not a ticket to paradise. Every man and woman going to church and every church member must ask himself, am I part of God's true remnant? Am I really saved? And those are hard questions. And they hurt. They hurt me when I ask myself. But you know, God in his mercy doesn't leave us with questions. He gives us answers. And so can I know whether I'm part of the remnant or not? The apostle John gives us an answer in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we know that we belong to God if we love the brethren in faith. Those who love their brethren belong to God. And you know what? It does not say we belong to God if we like the brethren. It says if we love them. One of the sins in the church in Sturum that I have to deal with is that the elders think that you can only become a church member if we like you. Okay? If we think that you're like us and you sing the same songs and you live the same life, then you become a member of the church. And I keep telling them, no, that's sinful. The point is not to like each other. The point is to love each other. And to love means 
to serve each other and to submit to each other. To love the brethren means you put the well-being of the brethren above your own. That's what love means. And be thankful if there are a bunch of people in this church whom you don't like. Those are the first ones you can love and know that you belong to God. Because it's easy to love your friends. It's more difficult to love the ones that you don't like. And so John says, if you love your brethren, then you can know that you belong to God. Only those who submit themselves to their brethren can be sure to belong to, to God, but they really can be sure. If you don't love your brethren and submit to them, God warns you to change your life and to change your heart in order not to be lost. And so the Noah principle holds even today. Out of a large number of human beings all over the world, God has selected the ones he carries his history on with. And out of a large number of churches all over the world, God has selected the faithful ones. And these are the people God has made to be faithful to him and to do what he speaks For their sake, God has not given up mankind altogether. And for their sake, the world has a future and a hope. Now, this raises another dicey question. So we say God created the people who believe in him, but he also created the people who do not believe in him because God is the source, is the creator of all life. So if he created Those who believe in him, who trust him, he also created those who don't trust him. Oh, but those are the ones who are deemed doomed for for destruction. Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unfair that God made people that are doomed for destruction because he didn't give them a heart to receive faith? The question is very obvious. Isaiah spoke about it. Paul in the letter to the Romans speaks about it. And here's what Paul says. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who has resisted God's will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another one for dishonor? And so what Paul is saying is, again, God is sovereign in his creation. If God decides to make people faithful, he has the right and the power to make people unfaithful. And to accept that, that's the essence of faith. To accept that God is sovereign. But you know, that's not all. The Bible tells us that God endures with much long suffering all those who do not believe in him in order to redeem his remnant. If there wasn't the remnant, humanity would have been destroyed a long time ago. 
As Isaiah says, unless the Lord had left us a seed, we would not, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Noah principle is an, is an assurance to the godless world that God will not destroy the world until Jesus comes back. And God gives those who do not believe in him good things, life, careers, status in society, money, fat bank accounts. And often God gives the people who do not believe in him more of those good things than the people who are faithful to him. Read the Psalms. How many times do you read in the Psalms, why do the wicked prosper? And the subtext is, they prosper more than the church. Isn't that scandalous? And Jesus says, yeah, but they have had their reward. It's over for them. We have something to look forward to. For them, the money they have, the fame they have, the status they have, that's all they'll ever have. We, if you believe in Jesus, we have something to look forward to. Jesus said, God lets his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the just and the unjust. And so ever since the great flood, the fact that there's a remnant of people who are faithful to God makes the world a better place, even for the wicked people. Because the faithful ones, they pass on the love of God even to the wicked, even to their enemies. It is in this sense that God said to Abraham, you shall be a blessing to many nations. And the prophet Micah said of the people of God, the remnant of Jacob will be among many nations like the morning dew of the Lord, like the rain on dry grass. The people of God are a blessing to the nations among whom they live. That's what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt is meant to prevent corruption. And light is meant to prevent confusion. And so where the remnant is, corruption is not as bad as it could be. In John 3.16, we read, Thus God loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that all who believe in him shall not be lost but have eternal life. Now, often people take that as proof of general redemption. No. Jesus died on the cross so that all who believe in him shall have eternal life. Those who don't believe in him shall not have eternal life. But the fact that Jesus came and that there are disciples in the world today is a sign of God's love for the entire human race. Because without the people of God, the world would be much, much more wicked and terrible. And so God loves the wicked and the godless ones and blesses them by keeping a remnant of his people alive in the world. And so you know what? The gospel is good news. It's good news for us. It's good news for nature. It's also good news for the wicked and godless people who don't want to listen to it because the world would be much worse 
without God's people. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded them. And so the Noah principle confronts you with a question today. And the question is, where do you stand? Where are you? Are you among the remnant that's saved? Or are you among all the other ones that go into destruction? Look at your life. Listen to your own words. And ask yourself, do I love the brethren? Do I serve them? Do I submit to them? And if you're not sure, then pray to God and ask him to give you more faith and more love for your brothers and sisters. But if you're sure to belong to his remnant, then thank God from the depth of your heart for his goodness and his mercy. And then do what Jesus tells you to do, to love one another and to love your enemies. Amen. Let us pray.